Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mahara Podcast Founders Series, Episode 4. We are uh, rather happily joined by a good friend of myself and a good friend of Mahara, Chaba, founder and MD of a business called ICQ Global. Uh, we've had the benefit of working alongside Chaba for pushing six or seven years now, and myself have known this fine gentleman for upwards of 10, I believe now. But Chaba's got a fantastic background and story and a really, really interesting business that he has founded and grown. And I think today's episode is, is going to be very insightful for anyone that is interested in the intercultural space or thinking about how teams operate or psychological safety, because there's a fantastic amount of information inside of this gentleman's brain. And we're very much looking forward to digging into it. Um, obviously, Benji joins us again. And we've got a series of themes that we're going to run through with Chaba and we'll see how we get on. So, uh, Chab, it'd be great if you could kick us off with a little bit of background about yourself, because it is, as I said, very interesting, and um, maybe touch on the why for the reasons you founded ICQ Global in the beginning. Right, thank you so much for inviting me. You know, when I get this question, then usually people expect a really inspiring story that I wanted to change the world and make it a better place, but that's not exactly how it started. So I grew up in Hungary. I spent half of my life here and then half in the UK. And when I started my company, a restaurant booking site, then I just had an idea. How come I cannot buy mussels? Where can I find mussels? I just wanted to eat it. And I thought, how come you cannot search for it? So we created a website and it was searchable. So we could compare the value. Is it the price? Is it the location? Is it the quality? Great idea, but it didn't work because the restaurants didn't update the menu. So it was pointless. So it turned into a restaurant booking site. We started with 35 restaurants in Brighton. In one year, we had 5,500. It turned into a joint venture with a software company. And on paper, everything made sense. We were getting the results. But in real life, I clashed with the other CEO who was French. And I'm not saying that was the problem, but we got to the point where we had to get out of the business. We sold the shares. This business is still online, but we are not involved anymore. And this is when I started my research because I didn't understand how come that was the exact topic of my dissertation. The department where I studied is number one in the world in its category. I had years of experience. How come I couldn't put that theory into practice? So I got certified in a lot of different things. And my idea was that if all of these models are or were correct, there must be a huge overlapping part. And that's what I'm interested in, the blueprint of why people think and behave differently. There must be a structure. As it turned out, there is, and now it's available in 42 countries. So that transition from entrepreneur, founder, mm. totally going to going to business battle, thinking they're armed to be able to, you know, tackle the intricacies of working with other human beings and, and people. So the primary breakdown was, you know, relational or, or people-based. And, you know, we've often spoken about you know, statistics around mergers and acquisitions and when companies buy companies. And obviously this is, you know, for a lot of people that will listen to this, they're first time founders or founders that are looking for other entrepreneurs to go into business with. What would the, um, what if you were to give a, a short, sharp piece of advice or, or thinking, how could you even begin to assess that? How could you think about mitigating any risks when it comes to those relationships? That clash still happened. So I'm curious, you know, as the, as the first kind of question is, how, how could you mitigate that if, as an entrepreneur moving into a, you know, a, a, a new business relationship with a fellow founder? As you know that I repeated that mistake after that. You know that very well. I think you just have to think about why you need a co-founder. 
And to be honest, you can find a lot of rational lies, but most of the time it's fear. You want to share the responsibility. You don't want to be alone. It's a lonely journey. And I think that was the main reason. And for long, I just ignored the yellow signs. You know, the more invested you are in a relationship, personal or professional, the more you try to justify it. Other people can see it, but you cannot. And that's exactly what happened to me. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It's very difficult to be objective. So you need an outside perspective and that can help you a lot. Then you can measure these things and just listen to your gut feeling. Don't do it out of fear. Do it because it makes sense. Now, at what point are you going to recommend to two co-founders, for example, that it's willing, you're willing to, uh, they should keep going. They should work past their differences. And at what point is it time for them to split ways? There are two ways of approaching this issue because the first one is homophilic diversity. And I know it sounds like a disease, but it just means that we like and trust people who are similar to us. You know, people who have common sense. It's easy to get along. So you can build a team that is individually really, really smart, but collectively blind. So you have a huge blind spot and you have the same tunnel vision. So maybe on the surface, you look diverse, but deep inside, almost cognitively inbred. And we have plenty of case studies to show that. It's easy to get along, but it's not good for innovation. It's not good for strategy. That's the main problem with that. And the other one is that you need complementary partners. And this is the main lesson that I learned, that I can do a lot, but not everything. So it makes much more sense if you can double down on your strength and you find somebody who loves doing what you cannot stand. But that's much easier if you have a goal, a purpose, because often motivation comes from clarity. And it's not enough to know what's wrong, but how you can fix it. You are probably, you know, a lot of people who stand against something, they complain, but you ask them, so what do you want instead? What is the solution? I don't know. Okay. That's not helping anyone. So that is the, the main priority. How do you create that vision in the future, which is beyond you and it's serving other people as well. If you don't share that, then it's going to be very difficult to make it work because it's not true that we celebrate diversity and we love everyone. That's not true. I think that's an interesting point there, which is a common thread and certainly something that at the beginning of Ben and I's journey, as we found in Mahara, and as you know, Chad, Ben and I are very different characters, but we had an aligned vision. And I think that was the key thing. You know, when we, when we sat down in that pub in off Oxford Street, we knew what we wanted to do. We knew that we had completely different, but skill sets that did dovetail over that, but we were definitely strong in certain areas. I think that point that you said, that aligned vision and that clarity and that path, because then you can kind of make sure that you are going down something together. You know, you're not necessarily um, missing things within the gray. It's really, really clear. The business you founded, you know, if you were to, if you were to really give an elevator pitch, I suppose. So if Benji and I were a company that is looking to acquire a company, or as you came to Mahara and you spoke to us when we were a leadership team of six, you know, what, 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 why? Why should, why should we be bothering talking to you? And why should we bother talking to ICQ Global? I think the best elevator pitch is when not, you're not telling anyone what to sing, but you ask them questions. You, you, you present the same situation from different perspectives and they have to come up with the answer. So I would ask you, what's the point in employing really smart people if they don't feel psychologically safe enough and motivated enough to collaborate, innovate and contribute? And you might come back, well, but they are. So how do you know that? You're hoping for the best? Do you think they tell you? That's the problem with these invisible forces. You know, for example, before the pandemic, I knew how to wash my hands. I thought so. Until I saw that experiment on TV. You know, when they use this purple dye? Wow, and I thought that's disgusting. 
So, you know, once you make these invisible forces visible, there's no way back. You raise your standards. And yes, you can measure these things because we know exactly that if you score high on psychological safety, cognitive diversity and motivation, you make a lot of money. People are engaged. They are happy. You are growing. If you score low, well, technically your days are numbered and you have bleeding money. So we can measure them. We can optimize them. But it's really difficult to optimize anything without being able to measure it and visualize it. And that's our expertise. And how do you do that, that tangible, how do you measure tangibly that impact that you're having? So it depends because there are two sides to the business and that question can refer to both. So technically on 70% of the business is about certifying coaches, trainers, partnering with training companies. They get certified, we give them everything and then they go out in the real world and they do the training, coaching and they make a difference. The other 30% is about designing courses, coaching, workshops, and things like that. Let's talk about the, the smaller one, because that is the job part, because it pays well, but it's you know limited. And if you want to build a business, that has to be scalable, and that's the other side. So that's why that is the smaller one. So when you work with people, then we just have to understand that their perception is their reality. That's it. Nobody can argue with that. If you are unhappy, if you don't like me for any reason, then it's going to determine how you interact with me, how much you share with me and what you say about me and how motivated you will be. So the questions are about this. And also we measure cognitive diversity because how can you fix something if you don't know how it works? Just like our mindset. Most people use their mindset, like my granny uses her smartphone. She can use a few apps really well, but she doesn't know it's a supercomputer. If it breaks down, she doesn't know how to fix it. She doesn't know how to upgrade it. And most people are like this. So we do our best based on what we know, even though the world is changing completely. But we also have to understand that we can use big words that we celebrate diversity, but that's not true. Your brain doesn't like that because it means unpredictability. And that's the last thing that the brain wants. But if I know that, I also know the solution. Get to know yourself and get to know people who think and behave differently. We can measure that gap between you and Rich, you and your company, you and the UK, you and anybody else. And that matters, everything is relative. But once you get that report, we can work on your comfort zone. So instead of running around that, eh, I am a blue person or yellow or whatever you say, no, don't use it as an excuse. Then we can work on your comfort zone and behavior flexibility. Not because something is wrong with us, it's because if something is rigid, it breaks. So that's what we are working on. So it's us, but an upgraded version. That's a pretty good deal. So these things we can measure. And the more you know yourself, the more you know other people, the more you can complement each other, the more the psychological safety is going to go up, the more clarity you have, the more motivation appears in the team. And cognitive diversity, well, that's the difficult part. Because what happens when somebody disagrees with you? It's not pleasant. It's never going to be pleasant. But that's exactly where the potential lies for success or disaster. It's not automatic. It's something that at least most people need to learn. When you're going in, you're having these conversations. Obviously, for you to even be in the door and you having those conversations, there's got to be a level of intrigue or kind of acceptance of the theory or, or, or desire to kind of push the organization forward because they've spotted an issue. Do you find that most of the time, a lot of these businesses are really behind the curve on what they could or should be doing to maximize that potential or you or you know particularly in recent times have you seen more of a shift you know psychological safety has been spoken about more in the last 24 months than i've ever heard that phrase you know so there is some awareness coming 
which is you know obviously great for the the field you're in. Do you do you see businesses that are more mature, say post pandemic, than what they were before because they really had to assess how their teams work. They really had to assess what how they function as a completely distributed team in some cases, and be that culturally or geographically. Yes, but I'm not sure if it's about maturity. Because let's be honest, most people don't do anything until it hurts enough. And now companies are hurting because of the great resignation. People had some time to reflect, why would I go back to the toxic environment? There's a lot of money spent on psychometric assessments and assessing candidates. Fantastic. But where do they go? You can, best, you can get the best candidate, but if they land in a toxic environment, it's not going to work out. So it's a two-way street. And now the companies need to demonstrate that they are inclusive. Otherwise, they cannot keep the best people and they cannot attract the best talent. So now they are hurting enough. Especially if you look at the research that by 2030, there's going to be a shortage of 85 million employees, 85 million employees. And that translates into eight and a half trillion dollars in lost revenue, which is kind of crazy. And to make it even more exciting by 2030, 85% of the jobs that will exist haven't been invented yet. But we know one thing. People skills are going to be more important than ever before. So technically, it's a decision to make today. Are we going to invest in people so we can use technology in the future to make us more efficient? Or we just react and then technology is going to replace us and we are going to work for it. And it's quick. And that has to be done right now. So I think it's the right timing. People are paying attention. Psychological safety, motivation that's more business oriented. If you look at diversity and inclusion, that tends to be it's not nice to say, but more like PR and marketing often for many companies. And we have plenty of case studies to show that. A bunch of different looking people who think the same way. It's really easy to be inclusive towards people who think like you, you know, people who have common sense. So once we understand when it comes to performance, then there's a blueprint. And this is what we specialize in. Data-driven yeah. team coaching and organizational development. You can measure these things, not relying on stereotypes. What you're talking about it could seem quite quite alien, quite fresh to someone who's been in the business for multiple decades. And they've got a fixed mindset about how they build a team, how they build a culture, and it's worked for many, many years. How do you encourage people who are at the latter stages of their career, but are the influencers in their business to adapt and to change? So when we talk about the four stages of growth based on the three invisible forces, then stage two is called time bomb for a reason. Because when there's a time bomb somewhere, you don't notice it. If you do, you can diffuse it. If you don't, then too late. I can't remember who said it, but they said that uh, the toilet stinks only on the way in, not the way out. Meaning that you can get used to anything. People are amazing, but you can get used to pain and you don't realize how much damage has been done. So when we measure these things, you have the percentages, you have the data and we know where it leads to. So technically what we can do, we can just show them that if you carry on like this, this is what's going to happen based on research. So we bring this memory back from the future and then compared to that pain, the discomfort of investing in this is nothing. But some people are scared, like fixed mindset, I don't have a problem. Now you just don't know about that. Maybe that's a bigger problem. And some people are scared of the data because you know, what if you step on the scale and it shows that, oh wait, you put on five kilo. You can hate the scale or you can go on a diet. The scale just shows you that you are on track or you are getting fat. So 
this is what we can do. So you can make a more informed decision. And that's how you can future-proof your organization and also your career. Just because you get by now, just because it doesn't hurt enough now, it doesn't mean that you're not going downhill. And that is the key, that there is no plateau. You are growing mm. or declining. Just often, you don't see the difference because today is very similar to yesterday. Plus, I'm going to find an excuse. I did that with two companies. No, everything is fine. Let me just do the work instead. They're not doing anything. This mm. is what we do. That's why you need an outsider sometimes. I think it's an interesting point you just made there because it reminds me of some studying I've been doing around internal communications, you know, as we grow as a business, it's the, that really needs to be there as a strategy. And one of the key points, one of the books I was listening to was around the development of uh, business leadership, but it was mainly it started in instruction. You must do this because I tell you to do this. Then it's down to object objectives. We're doing this because these are the great things that are happening. And then it's landed eventually on values. And I think what what you're essentially talking to, to to Benji's question is it's about education so that people can evolve and evolve in their thinking because this is this is the way well, what you offer as a business and what you're trying to change with inside of many of these companies are very positive things and I think you know that that tangibility piece that we talk to is um, a really interesting one and you, you touched on diversity and inclusion I had a, had a fascinating conversation with a business called EA Inclusion and they've got a way to actually tangibly prove the success of the programs that they put in on the on the bottom line you know as opposed to sadly like you like you touched on some people talk to it without any real weight behind it you know what you do is a very similar thing it's an, it's a it, there will be a tangible output and an impact on the business and therefore on the bottom line and the people and the culture and everything else that the businesses you work with just to just to bring us back to to you, I guess, as a little bit of an individual and, and to a point Benji and I were chatting about. You've done remarkably well to be a guest publisher on Forbes, written your own book, which we'll make sure we must link in down below. I've read it cover to cover. It's really, really interesting. And you've done lots of stuff, I think, Harvard Business Review as well. How did you, as a, you know, a solo founder, who's obviously highly educated and understands the, the, the sector very, very well, what was that journey like? Because we talk a lot about with our, our founders about thought leadership. And how do you how do you get that credibility and ensure that you can speak to a topic with with confidence so that people buy into you as an individual and, and thus the things that you're trying to uh, you're trying to create inside the business. So what was your what was your journey like? You know, to being asked to to contribute on a regular um, on a regular kind of cadence with a, a publication like Forbes. In the foundation is that I don't want people to buy into me, and I think a lot of people do that, and that's the wrong reason. Because you know that I do the webinar every single month, the four stages of growth. And even in the beginning, I tell people, I'm not here to convince you. I'm here to show you what happened to me, what I found out, what challenges I had, how I overcame them, what solutions we developed and what results we are getting. And then you can make a better decision for yourself. Mm. So to me, that was always important that when I have something to say, I say it, but not because I want to position myself as a guru and things like that. You cannot be the community around the guru you know, around the ego. No, that has to be a cause, a purpose. And that's really important. And my approach is not about using big words because everybody can overcomplicate things. But usually that means that they don't understand the topic well enough or they want to look smarter than they are. That's bad. If you can make it practical and uncomplicated, that's good. So people can understand it and they can apply that knowledge. So mm -hmm. all my updates were about presenting the same situation from different perspectives, something unusual. So it made people think. And you know, sometimes people disagreed with me, especially when I said that culture is not a synonym for countries. 
the established company is still preaching that. It's not true. Science doesn't support that if somebody is up to date in their field, but they build a business on it. So they have to sell what the client, what they have, not what the clients need. So I know they don't like it, but whatever I say, I can back it up. And the consistency was important. Every time I had an idea, a new insight, I published it. I wrote an article on LinkedIn. And then after two years, technically, I just collected all my articles. In one month, I wrote my book. Then I asked Marshall Goldsmith to contribute to it. John Matone, Steve Jobs, former coach, Dr. Tony Alessandra from the US, the creator of the Platinum Rule, and a few other contributors. So the idea is endorsed from different areas, not just psychometric field, but the intercultural field and the coaching mm -hmm. field as well. I'm always thinking how to create synergy. Nobody likes piggybacking, but think about how you can help someone. How can you create a win-win situation? And that's the most important part. If I was worried about how many people like me or how many people buy into me, that would be really stressful. But you see my updates. They tend to be thought-provoking. I'm not going to publish anything just because I need attention. I did that once just to test an idea. And that was an article where there was a really pretty woman and then oh, I can't do this anymore or something like this. And then it had the most views. Unbelievable. So it's all about testing the idea because it doesn't matter how much we think. You have to take it out in the real world. You get feedback from real people. And that's why I do the webinar every single month to test it every single time I distill the message. That's the only way. I think the really interesting point, which I think a lot of people, I know we've been talking about a lot in Mahara of like, it's it's great to hear someone talk about putting thought-provoking content out there without the necessary personal gain. And obviously you do, you, you can indirectly, but there is a tremendous amount of, you know, virtual signaling and things like that across LinkedIn, where it is, I'm going to post just to see if I can look, make myself look great. Whereas you're actually thinking, how can, how can I put something out there? How can I contribute and provide insight? So that people can latch onto and then from that and that consistency like you said two years doesn't come overnight and, you know i've sat in on a couple of your your webinars and they are it's an open forum isn't it you are very much taking the back seat on that there is that there's a nucleus of an idea or a question and then the, but it is for them and everybody in the community to kind of feed into and, and see what they can get out of that so i think you know as a little nugget of information is definitely make it about your audience and make it about your vision rather than about you as the individual i think is a, a important thing this is an interesting point about being a kind of a content creator or posting as a thought leader. And it's something that I've started to try over the last month or so. How do you how do you present your views in such a way that adapt your communication style so that it is accessible to a large number of people? So you spoke about that post that you did where it was, uh, you know, an attractive post and it got your most number of views but it might not have been the message you wanted to share. How do you combine the communication style of something like that, which it's uh, going to be clickable, it's going to be enticing someone to read that, but ensure that there's a really important message there. That's something I personally find really difficult to do. I think you can do that if you don't try to please everyone. And I think, you know, because I coach coaches as well. And it's really interesting to see the pattern that most of them are really, really smart people. but. I asked them, so what is your niche? Well, I'm certified in this and this. I said, okay, that's great. But what is the problem that you solve? Well, I'm certified in this and this. I said, fantastic. That's not ideal. So, you know, we have to go deeper. And often the problem is that they try to please everyone. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm good at this, 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 this. But I said, but if people look at your website, 
they think that you do five different topics, then you cannot be the best at everything. But if you have your niche, you have that strap line, and then you, they can see that, wait, so yeah, that's like the depth. So it's one topic, but you're the best at it, and you can approach it from different perspectives. Now that hits hard. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what I do with my updates. It, it has to resonate with the right people, because if you dilute your message too much, it's not going to resonate with the right ones. And those are the ones that I really want, not everyone. So even if you read my book, even in the beginning, I say that, this is not a dissertation. This is not an academic book. I've got three masters. Yes, I've got that background. I can back up everything. But intentionally, I've wrote it in a way that normal people can understand it. Otherwise, it's just an ego trip. It has no positive impact. I'm not there to please academics. I want to be the bridge between the academic world and the real world. And there's a big gap in the market there. And that's where, for example, Forbes is important as well, because I'm really intentional about the articles. So you know that now we have more than 170 licensed partners in 42 countries, and I want them to be able to use everything that we have. So even the titles, like the three invisible forces that make or break a team, if they send that Forbes article to a potential client, it works. Shiny stuff works. It's, it's worth more than two PhDs. It's sad, but it's true. So let's use it. So they can create a whole brochure about this. And that's how I want to create synergy. But it has to be, when you do an update, I think it has to be, practical, but slightly weird. Because if somebody doesn't know something, it's not a problem. But when they think they do, that's bad. Because the new yeah. information doesn't go in. So for example, yeah. the next Forbes article is about hostage negotiation and coaching. I saw the overlap, so let's talk about this. So it's just try to focus on your audience because the right people will read it. Mm. If you have to beg someone to read your updates, you have to chase someone. That's not a good sign. I want to attract the right people. I never chase them. But you can only attract the right people if they can get to know you, if they trust you. And that's what Rich said. That's integrity, which means that you're not switching your style constantly, that one day you update your logo, the next day you, you post about something else. People want to know, what do you stand for? Not against, what do you stand for? And what do you do about that? Because if you can describe that future, as vivid as other people can describe their memories in the past, they can stand behind you. Then you can create a community. People want to know you, but if you just complain about something or it's just about virtue signaling, also people do that, but I don't think that's sustainable. This one takes longer, I think, because it's difficult to cut through the noise, but personally, I would rather promise less and deliver more. And that's the reason why they recommend us. And the best, I think, brochure is when I just tell people, talk to any of the active members, ask them how it goes in ICQ. Well, uh, I think that keep it simple, have integrity, be consistent, you know, stand for what you're interested in. I think that's a, that'd be a great way to kind of close this off. Thank you very much for, you know, giving us a little bit of insight into what ICQ Global does. Um, and obviously the, you know, having built, you know, such a, such a following and done so well in the, the thought leadership space. I think some of the information you just gave there and the, the advice you gave there would be invaluable, no doubt, for people looking to looking to grow their either personal brand or, or grow their brand of their businesses about how, how potentially people could do it right. Always wonderful to speak to you and thanks for coming on the podcast with us.